It is a privilege to share with you a message tonight, and I thank Pastor Charlie for the kind invitation this week to bring something that has been on my heart actually for a couple of months. I've been thinking about this, and I thought, man, if I ever get a chance to preach again, this is what I want to talk about. So thank you, Pastor, for the privilege to come tonight and share a little bit with you folks. I have never preached this message before, um, and this message does not come from some sense of Grace Church that I have in these three months or months that I've been here, or anything from the Roanoke Valley, or, or anything from the United States at all. This message is not prompted by any of those, those things. It stands alone. And so I have been praying that you will find some usefulness in this message. Um, I'm accustomed to using a PowerPoint, and so I'm going to depend upon my brother in the back to prompt the slides for you to look at. I want to start tonight by asking you the question, what makes you afraid? Is there anything that makes you afraid? Maybe some of you are utterly fearless, and nothing makes you afraid. And praise God for those of you that are that way. But most of us would have to admit that there are things that we can be afraid of. And the place to start with that topic, in my mind, is the simple question of phobias. Now, I don't hear Christians speak about phobias very much. I don't know why that is. We're not interested. We think we're exempt from phobias. I don't know what, why that is. I haven't heard it talked about very much, but a phobia is an irrational fear of something. For instance, brother, if you'd prompt the beginning of this slide for me, the fear of public speaking is called glossophobia. Did you know that? I didn't know that before this week. I'm terrified of being here tonight. The fear of spiders is called arachnophobia. You probably knew that. Some of you might feel that way a little bit about spiders. If you have a fear that... Uh, is the PowerPoint not working? You're working on it. Whoa, they'll catch up. The fear of this going out of range. You, any of you have, you, are you any of you afraid you're going to lose your cell coverage? Yes. Such spiritual people. It's called nomophobia. Um, electorophobia is the fear of chickens. And fear of men is called androphobia. Conversely, fear of women is called gynophobia. Francophobia is the fear of France or French culture. I would have thought Francophobia was the fear of the Generalissimo Francisco Franco, but it's not. That's the fear of French stuff. Hippophobia is the fear of horses, which makes no sense to me at all. I would have thought hippophobia was the fear of... <laughs> Apparently not. And the, the great one... Is hexacosio, cosioi, hexaconta, hexafo. The fear of the number 666. 
don't know if you have phobias at all. I have a phobia. I'm very serious when I share this with you. I have always had a fear of suspension bridges. And that has a name. Um, I can't remember what it is right now. I'm afraid to even remember what it is. Gryphophobia, I think. I remember exactly when I developed that phobia. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge in Annapolis. I was a small child. My folks liked to go to Rehoboth Beach. And I was utterly terrified. I climbed under the back seat. Since that time, the Mackinac Straits in Michigan is a terrible bridge. The Delaware River Bridge. The Mount Hope Bridge in Rhode Island. Do you know to get from point A to point B in Rhode Island, you normally, most of you, would just drive across the Mount Hope Bridge. I would have a visit occasionally. I'd drive three times the distance to avoid that bridge. It's a phobia. The last time I drove over a suspension bridge was to go to my daughter's wedding in Queens, New York. And there was no way not to get over to Queens but by the Whitestone Bridge. It was terrible. It's a fear. It's being afraid. But a phobia, it seems to me, is something of a predictable fear. You know when it's coming. You can, you can map the feeling a little bit, and if you're rational, avoid the irrational fear. But then there are times when something just happens, wham, and you're hit with something that you hadn't planned, and you are mowed down by an unexpected fear. Have you had that happen? You're terrified. The last time that happened to me was in 2013, when I got lost in Denmark and Germany. I don't speak either Danish or German. And I was supposed to meet somebody in Copenhagen, and I had to get to Berlin, and I had never made, I didn't make the contact, missed the contact. I'm standing there not knowing what to do. And then it occurred to me, and I'm slow, maybe Neil, and I don't mean to sound cocky about this, folks, but the thought did come into my head, maybe you need to trust God right now. And I did. And there were points over the next 18 hours where the Lord clearly showed up. So my fear was met with His presence. But I was terrified. I've never sweat so much in my life. That's my most recent experience that I can think of, of this kind of fear. Now the passage before us tonight is from Mark's Gospel. And it's also, the incident is also in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. It's one of those most incredible and wonderful miracles that are in all three of these Gospels. And I have a slide to, to walk you through this. You can read your Bible. It's in Mark chapter 4. And it is, as I say, a wonderful, magnificent miracle. 
And Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this incident from the apostles' experience with Jesus. But let me read this passage to you. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And I'm reading ESV here, although I'm sporting an NAS up here. But I've got ESV, that's what I'm going to give you in my reading. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the winds were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern. Sleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God bless the reading of his word. Now, similar passages are in Matthew and Luke. And to compare, the three are interesting. I picked Mark, and I, I want you to know that I did ask Pastor Charlie's permission to preach from the Gospel of Mark. I didn't give them much time to say no. I just busted in on their staff meeting. I said, by the way, can I preach from Mark? Good, thank you, bye. Because I know he's going through Mark. But I, I, I wanted to give him the option to say, go with Matthew or Luke, which he didn't, because I didn't give him time. But it's an interesting comparison to do to read Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account. There are some, some interesting differences. Mark's is the longest, which you might not expect in the case of a reading from the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel, but it's the longest account of this particular event. So I selected this one. There is, gentlemen, the next slide, there is also, John doesn't record this event, but I want you to know something that John does if you can get that slide, or folks, just go to John chapter 6. John gives an account of a similar event, and clearly I think he must have been there. He may have been there for this one we're talking about. But here's, here's another one, just to give you a little bit of context. John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat 
was at the land to which they were going, which I, I don't know. I've watched too many sci-fi movies or something because I imagine Jesus getting the boat and then the boat. And probably that's not what happened. But that's what the text says from John is immediately they're at the land. They're on the shore of Capernaum. And I don't know how the physics of that works. This is not the same miracle, but it's similar. John, for some reason, is not led of the Holy Spirit to record the event that Mark, Matthew, and Luke do record, and almost certainly John was there. We are not told the passengers on the boat. All the writers of these Gospels tell us is that they went down to a boat. So we have to make some assumptions that who they were. We don't know if it was three of them or 12 of them or how many it was. Now, I think this is an amazing event. And I want you to notice some details that Mark gives us. Because Mark gives some really interesting, to me, details. First of all, the launching was at the evening. Now, if you're going to go boating, are you going to go out at night? Well, maybe you're, maybe you're going to do that. Most of the time, I think boating's done during the day. Then, it is almost always during the day, unless there's some compelling reason. Jesus said, let's go, let's go to the other side. Jesus has got a plan. This isn't accidental. It's not random. He said, hey, guys, we're going over to the other side. Let's go down. Let's get in the boat. And let's go over there. But, you know, it's 6 o'clock. It's, we're going. Second detail is they set course for the other side. Now, if you have, if, I don't know, some of you probably have been to Israel. If you go to Israel, if you approach the Sea of Galilee from the southwest, which would be the direction you'd be coming from if you're coming from Jerusalem, you crest a hill, and it's most amazing and beautiful. As you crest the hill, maybe not even you're, you're not even ready for it, aware of it, and there is the Sea of Galilee, the whole Sea of Galilee. You can see it in one glance. Something like five and a half miles wide by about 13 miles long. Not very big. Not the sort of body of water that you would say, oh, we better be careful because a terrible storm can come up at any time. You look at the Sea of Galilee and you go, it's beautiful, it's calm, it's lovely. That's a natural reaction. That was my natural reaction. But Jesus says, we're going to the other side. And the next interesting detail is that Jesus falls asleep. That's not a surprise. He's probably exhausted. You read the beginning of chapter 4, there's a lot of things going on. He's teaching. There's all kinds of things, casting out demons. And Mark gives a really interesting little detail that neither Matthew nor Luke tell us. He's on a cushion. I mean, I read that the first time, and I said, they had cushions? I I didn't even know they had cushions in the first century. Well, they did, and here's one, and there's a boat cushion in the boat. And so they step into the boat, and they're finding their way around this boat, having a seat. How many there were? We don't know how many many of the guys were there. And Jesus goes, look, I'm going to sit back here. And he sits down and on a cushion, falls asleep. 
Now, presumably, Peter, John, James, maybe others of the disciples, maybe all 12 of them were not told. Presumably, they have a seat. There are no large cabin cruisers in the first century on the Sea of Galilee. These are 27-foot boats from our time, 27 feet in length. Next slide, please. We don't know the size of the boat, but a boat has been excavated from the mud on the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Jesus Boat. Hey, when you go there, you'll be, obviously, if you go particularly to the kibbutz, North Ginnasaur, that's where this boat is housed. You can see this thing, and that's wood. That's 2,000-year-old wood. They dig this out of the mud, and it's 27 feet, by the way. Well, this clearly is not the boat that we're reading about, but it's from the time and very possibly very similar. And these guys get into this boat, and um, <laughs> there are no life vests, no safety vests. Almost certainly they are probably in the pitch dark or whatever ambient light there might be from the stars or the moon. Almost certain. I wouldn't think they had lanterns, although they might have, but there's not much light. Probably they're in the dark. And they set themselves down, except for a couple of them, would probably hoist a sail. It's not uncommon that Sea of Galilee boats are going to have a single mast and a sail. You say, how come there aren't any bigger boats? There must have been Roman galleys on the Sea of Galilee. Why? It's 13 miles long and five and a half miles wide. You didn't need the galleys. There might have been a royal yacht. That's possible, but most of the boats are simple boats of this size. There's no evidence that there's any larger boats. This is what they sat in. They sat down, the fishermen in the boat. They're not all, all the disciples are not fishermen. But those that are fishermen, they say we're shoving off, and they push off from the shore. And there are short ways out, evidently, and a storm in the dark comes up. As I say, I don't think they have any light. They're not strangers to sailing at night, but when an abrupt storm comes up, by the way, this happens today, too. I have two friends who have been on the little tour on the Sea of Galilee, and if you see any of you have been there, you've probably been on this boat. I have. It's the standard boat that goes out and, and uh, comes back. And I've had two friends that were on that tour when a storm just like this has come up. And they told me it's quite frightening. Men had no seat belts, no safety belts. And you'll notice Mark tells us there are other boats too. No more than that, just that detail. They're not alone, but the other boats are dealing with the same thing. There's no Coast Guard that we know of at all. And maybe they started to bail out, as anybody would. Mark does tell us the boat's going to go down. It's going to sink. And what about the noise? You know... My wife and I have different thresholds for noise. I can withstand lots of noise. 
She doesn't like much noise. She'll say, turn that down, please. So I do. There's no turning anything down here. And do you suppose a storm on a body of water would be a nice, quiet thing? Oh, isn't that calming? No! I'm sure it was quite loud and unnerving. I want you tonight to feel as much as we can what they were feeling. I don't like the fact that in church history the apostles have always been held to this sort of elevated place, like they're superhumans, they're superheroes. They're not really totally real because they were the apostles. I beg to differ. And I want you to feel what's going on as Mark records this. And where is Jesus? Is Jesus over in the office on the side of the boat with his arms folded going, well, this is going to be one of my great teaching moments here. Not at all. Where is he? He's asleep. He's human. And he's conked out in the back of the boat, in the stern of the boat, on a cushion. As the boat is filling. Now, they shook Jesus and woke him up. And here the three Gospels are a little different. Matthew says, they said, save us, Lord. We are perishing. We're going down. Mark, in our passage, says, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And Luke says, Master, Master, we're perishing. Now the, the nice scholars at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton would say, well, this is an obvious contradiction in the Bible. How can you take the New Testament seriously? You know, would you be able to resolve those three? You've got to get you a doctorate to resolve those three accounts. Or, or, or does your brain a lot take you to the place where you say, you know, I think maybe there's some other explanations other than this is a contradiction. Of course it is. I, I think anybody can imagine other alternative things like perhaps that all three of these were said. And I'm not going to dwell on that. But feel, please, the humanity of these men. As I suspect you would be in the boat. I would. I am not exempt from fear. I will pay you good cash money to drive me over the suspension bridge. In fact, I don't even want to go anywhere near one. I'm being transparent. That's humanity. That's where we're at. We're all wrestling with different things. And this is not phobias. This is an unexpected wham hit you in the face thing to be terrified of. In verse... I have my glasses on. 39a. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
Silence. Be still. Let's just linger there for a minute. What should Jesus' voice sound like? I, I fantasize about stuff like this. There's no way to answer that question. What did his voice sound like? Was it deep? Was it high? Did it have an accent? I don't know. We don't even really know what his words were. Next slide, please, gentlemen. Almost certainly, probably he spoke those two words. That is written Aramaic. It's the likely language he spoke in. I can't pronounce, I can't read or pronounce Aramaic. So we'll go with the Greek text. Will you be okay with that? That we have, and I don't think he probably said, next, next line too, Siopa, pathismoso. I don't think he probably said Greek to the weather. I think he probably said his normal language, which I can't duplicate because I don't know how to read Aramaic. In English, it comes out as silence. You know, the word, some of our translations say peace, really isn't, isn't the flavor of the first Greek word, anyway. It's a command. Silence! He's coming out of a dead sleep, by the way. Be still. And then we have B of verse 39, which is what I entitled this message tonight. What if 39B... Mark 4, 39b is true. Because 39b, it isn't a miracle that Jesus stood up and commanded the weather. It's part B of the verse. From which I haven't recovered yet. The wind ceased. <laughs> and there was a great calm. The first fear that the disciples felt was the fear of drowning. Oh man, we're going down. I, I, you know, I haven't even finished my will yet. I haven't even finished my last will and I haven't finished talking to my wife and my kids. I haven't done, you know. That's a fear. That's a, a, a fear. They're, they're going to die. They're going to die by drowning. I don't know what your fears are. I, I hope to not die by drowning. There's a whole bunch of ways I hope to not die by. But that is near the top of the list. And that's the first fear. But after Jesus asks them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We read from Mark. And they were filled with great fear. This is the second fear. Not that he asked them why they were struggling with this, but because of what he had done. He speaks to the weather. And, you know, once again, good old Harvard, Yale, and Princeton will say, well, you know, it's just a metaphor of something cool, and the weather cleared. Just happened to be right then. Really. 
Well, you can believe that if you want. I choose to believe the text of the Word of God, which says, boom, it was right then. The weather calmed. Folks, this is the Jesus to whom we pray. This is the Jesus to whom we pray. This is the Jesus we so routinely sing about and to. As I was working on this, the song came to mind. You know it. I'll love thee in life. I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. That's not what these guys were singing. But that's what we sing. And we're singing to him. And that song, by the way, was written by a young man from Montreal, Canada. He was between 12 and 16. He's a junior high, I would call him. He writes this poem, that song, and then he dies at 27 years old. And it's found by A.J. Gordon, who puts it to the tune that we know it to and published it in 1864. Well, that's when it was written, in 1864. Published a little while later. This is the Jesus that we are wanting to tell people about around us who do not know him yet. Do you have some names in your head? Do you have a name in your head of someone that you're confident doesn't know Jesus yet? And you're saying, man, he needs to know Jesus. This is, this is him. Yes? What are you afraid of these days? What fears do you have right now, today? What fears lie in your heart or haunt your mind? I, I don't even know the technical way to talk about fear, what the psychologist or the therapist or the neurosurgeons or whoever can discuss fear, what they would say is fear, but we all know what it is. It's being afraid. It's it's what these disciples were, were struck by. And we have fears. Don't tell me you don't have fears. You have them. What weather is going on in your life? He has your life in His hands. I talked to a friend of mine two weeks ago in Pennsylvania. I graduated from college with him. He's on his third round, his third bout with cancer. He's afraid. 
He's not reluctant to tell me that he's afraid, but he's trusting Jesus. A friend of mine in Massachusetts who was a physician and a good physician texted me this last week, text messaged me this last week, and he said, Neil, I am so lonely. I don't have any friends in whom I can confide. He is desperately lonely and afraid of being alone, but he's trusting Jesus. I have fears, as I've shared the phobia. Now, it's not a phobia. After 40 years of knowing what my professional map looks like, now I have no clue at all. One daughter lives 1,500 miles away. The other one lives 4,000 miles away. I'm thankful I have a wife who takes care of me. So I'm not alone. But I'm afraid that I'm a, I fear God might be through with me, which is okay, I guess, because he's used me for four decades to my privilege, great privilege. But I fear that. I wake up at night and I ask, Lord, are you done with me? Notice also that an important thing, we tend to focus on Jesus as the Lord of our redemption, and appropriately so. He is our Savior. He's our sin bearer. He's the one who paid the price so that we can have hope for the future and a, a glorious, wonderful hope. But he's also the Lord of creation. Let's not forget it is perfectly within the job description of the Son of God to look at the storm and go, shut up, will you? And it obey him. Don't look at me like that, folks. Don't look at me like, yeah, yeah, we know that. We, we, got, we, got, we got all our down. No. He is the Lord of creation, too. And there's another little implicit thing here. I wonder why Mark tells us that there's other boats. You know, they don't come alongside, throw the disciples' boat a rope. They're probably going down, too. And so the implicit blessing is that God's mercy swept onto that group of boats and probably rescued all of them with the stilling of the storm. Is that hard to imagine? I can imagine the guys in the other boat going, whoa, look what just happened. That guy over there, he's 10 feet away. He said something, you know, and the other boats, plural, were blessed. The grace of God spread out. So I think that's why Mark tells us there's other boats. Praise God. Amen? Amen. Now I cannot get over, I, I just can't get over Mark's comment, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This was beyond what any of them had imagined up to this point, at least as, as Mark gives us his timeline. So I'm asking you tonight, folks, what if this is true? I mean, we're all going to sign off on it and say, yeah, duh, of course it's true. It's in the Gospel of Mark. 
And I, 37 years ago, I signed on to believe in the whole Bible, so of course it's true. Let's, let's go past that. Sort of that corporate ascending to the Bible. What if this very incident is, in fact, a fact? It completely mows me down. If I'm on that boat, I'm answering that question <laughs> with something like, why am I so afraid? Because we'd be going down. We're going under. <laughs> Don't you care? I'm certainly no better than those guys. Don't you care? Mark tells us they actually question. In their terror, in their fright, in their fear, if you don't like terror, fright, and fear, then call it nervousness, apprehension. Some other word. For the moment, they're, they're wondering, don't you? How can you be sleeping on the cushion? Don't you care? Do we ever ask God that? Oh, no, no. We're, we're spiritual, Bible-believing Christians. We're never afraid. No? Liars. I am afraid sometimes. And we as much wonder the same thing today without the wind in our face, not in the dark. Soaking wet in the boat. We wonder if He cares. We wonder if He's asleep. Sometimes. Folks, I had this passage on my mind because I want to remind you, as I must frequently remind myself, our Jesus is not a tame lion. C.S. Lewis's line about Aslan. Our Jesus is not a tame lion. He is one to be proud of. He is one to go to for deliverance. He is one who in a moment speaks to the weather and it immediately comes about. Faith and fear are mutually exclusive things. But we must admit there are times when we're afraid. We do fear. I'm sorry. We do. But we need not fear. We need not fear. He has it under control. He's got it in His hands. Amen? Thank you. Privilege to be here tonight.